Amen. So good to be with you this morning. I appreciate so much your hearts to come and to just lift up and give God praise. This series that we're starting today is all about why we do what we do here at Victory. It's uh, hopefully going to answer some questions. We're going to do three messages on it, and then we're going to devote the fourth in the series to a 10-minute review and then a whole service of Q&A. We had a, an awesome time last month in our new series called App, and where we dealt with the, the concept of the finished work of Christ, the new creation. What does that mean? And we had five Sundays on that where we tried to preach one thought, teach one idea, and open it up for tweeted and texted in questions. And we got such an overwhelming response from that that we've really decided we're going to try this. Not going to do it every Sunday, but through every series we will tack on a whole, whole sermon. I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm sorry, not a sermon, but a whole service uh, that will be just a real quick review and then dedicate that whole time to answer any questions that you may have uh, posed or may have arisen during the series when we're teaching that. So I'm excited about this. It's going to be, a, I hope, an eye-opening series for you called Celebrate. Uh, I just want to give you a little quick heads up about July. My, my hero, Alex Blankenship, is going to be doing an awesome series called Simon Says. Uh, it's the five chapters of the book of First Peter. And, uh, and then we'll do a, a sixth message where it's a Q&A session for him as well. So excited about that. He's going to be having the whole month of July. And so invite your friends, get them all to come on out, because this month we're doing Celebrate. Next month we're doing Simon Says. What does Peter have to say to us for this hour? All right. This morning, as we jump in, just want to uh, hit the ground running with a text out of Psalm chapter 89, verse 15. I learned this years and years and years ago. Uh, it says, Blessed is the people that do know the joyful sound. For they shall walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. Is there any way we can get that up there? Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. Several of the other translations give us some variations of that. It talks about the sound of joyful praise. It tells us that when we do that and when we know it, when we understand it, when we walk in it and apply that, then we'll have the light of the face of the Lord on us. This actually connects to the last series because the last series gave us that important concept that we go to the mirror of the word of the Lord, not looking for the face of the man of sin, but we go to the mirror looking for the face of Jesus Christ. We gaze into the perfect law of liberty. We look at that and we forget not what manner of man we are. And then we go out and live. We, the, the scripture says we are blessed in our doing when we do so. If we look at that perfect law of liberty and we forget what manner of man we are, that is that we are now in Christ. And we go away and we continue to live in the memory of the old life, the past life, B.C., before Christ, in Adam, where everything is dying. If we don't renew our mind, renew our thinking, then we have the possibility of some identity theft. And now because of that, we can walk in the face or the light of the countenance of the Lord as we give him praise, as we kick off this series, it really connects to the last one. And the scripture promises us that if we know the joyful sound, it's, it's about a people who have been imbibed. I, I, I'll use a bar term. Uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it was 9 o'clock in the morning. It was the time of the morning sacrifice. 9 a.m., 3 p.m. each day is the morning and the evening sacrifice in the temple and 120 are gathered in an upper room, and God pours out his spirit in fulfillment of Pentecost. Exodus chapter 19, the law of God is given at the very first Pentecost in the wilderness, at the mountain. 
and God reveals and writes the law of God on the tablets of stone. Now, in Pentecost, when I receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit, I have the personal application and fulfillment of that in my life because the law of God is no longer written on tablets of stone, but it's written on the fleshly tablets of my heart. So with the infilling of the Holy Spirit on that day, in, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was resurrected, 50 means Pente, Pente means 50, Pentecost is 50 days later. It's called the Feast of Weeks in the King James. It was seven weeks in one day. Seven times seven is 49, plus one is 50. 50 days after the resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven, 40 days. They're, they're tarrying for 10, and he pours out his spirit from on high. Scripture says he led captivity captive. He brought all of the saints that were hiding, waiting in Abraham's bosom. And he brought them out. He took them to heaven with them. They ascended with him. And in 10 days after that, they're, they're in the, the temple waiting. They're praying. They're fasting. They're seeking. They're, 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 they're tarrying in Jerusalem, Luke 24, 45, until they have been endued with power from on high. On that day, Peter stood up and he says, because he hears the whispering among the people, They take it out of the upper room, down into the area where all the people can see it. And Peter begins to preach like a man possessed. He preaches one of the most magnificent sermons in Acts chapter 2. And 3,000 people get saved that day. Now that's, that's revival. That's true outpouring of the Spirit of God. And it's such an incredible thing that they're speaking in tongues. And all of the nations that are represented in Jerusalem hear them praising God. Each in every one of their own languages. And Peter stands up and he says, let me just tell you something, brothers. These people are not drunk as you suppose. Now, they they may be imbibed, but they're imbibed with the new wine of the Spirit. They're not imbibed with the wine of the fermented grape. These guys are not just acting crazy because they've, they've, they've hit the communion wine. These guys are doing something out of the empowering of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was given. He was poured out on that day. And in response to that, there was a joyful sound. I mean, it was literally this kind of a ruckus going on. And people are saying, what's happening? But yet they knew that in the middle of what looked like there was a little bit of disorder, there was the presence of God that was touching people and transforming their lives. And 3,000 got saved at Really not a very great message, but it was what was inside the words of Peter's preaching that touched and pricked the hearts of the people and caused them to come to Christ. So this morning, as we jump into this message called The Purpose of Celebration, three messages, and I want to talk to you today about the purpose next week, about the pattern, and then the third week about the power of celebration. I think that Uh, To celebrate something means that we just are so given to a purpose of excitement because something has been finished, something has been accomplished. We celebrated Drew's graduation from college. We celebrated our 26th wedding anniversary this week. Dawn and I did. And I'm going to tell you, that's something to celebrate. Most folks don't make it six, much less 26. The fact that she's made it with me that long, that is a testimony to the woman of God. I just want to tell you. I'm thankful today. And this morning I have a couple of scriptures that I want to share with you. Now there's a lot of background stuff here that's listed that we're not going to take time to read. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, Amos chapter 9 verses 11 and 12. And we'll explain why all that's there. But that's there just for background. So if you would look with me quickly this morning please to the, the New Testament book of Acts. Acts chapter 15. And particularly I think maybe you only have... 
16 and 17, but I'm going to add 15 real quick, and then we'll get it, okay? I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me one more time, and let's read this together. James is standing up in the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. He says, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Here we go. Say it with me. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. And that's my fault that I didn't tell Pastor Alex to include that one last little bitty short, verse 18, known from of old. All of these things have been known from of old. Father, we thank you today that as we stand in your presence in this place, having just renewed the covenant that is based upon the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Thank you for the unity that is in this place right now. Thank you, Lord, for the presence of God that is here. Move in our hearts, even as we have sung this morning. And the Old Testament prophet Hosea says, Judah shall plow. Lord, thank you that Judah means praise. And even in our praise and our worship, uh, you have come today and you've plowed the hearts of the souls of men so that the soil may receive the seed of the word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the lion of the tribe of Judah. Praise. Lord, as we praise you this morning, thank you that you give us an understanding of what celebration is all about, that we would be the people who do know the joyful sound, that we could walk in the light of your countenance and the face of your presence. We ask you for that in the name of Jesus. I acknowledge before you and everyone standing here that I cannot do anything apart from you. Holy Spirit, you're the only teacher. Open our eyes, open our ears, give us understanding. In Jesus' name I pray and all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated together in the presence of the Lord. It's not about form or style. It's about the presence of God. Five things I want to give you this morning very quickly. It's not about form or style. It's about the presence of God. Moses said in the book of Exodus, as they were preparing to go into the promised land, God, if you are not going with us, then I I ain't going. If you do not go with us, there is no way that we can go in and possess this land that is already inhabited by seven nations that are greater than we are. There is no way that we can inherit the promised land that you have given to us as the covenant people of Israel, as the chosen people of God. Now, bump that over into the new covenant now and recognize that it's only going to be with his presence that we can inherit the promises of God. And we're not talking about a strip of geography in Palestine any longer. By the way, I sure wish that some of the dispensationalists could put on some new covenant eyes and see that when Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4 verse 13, he says that Abraham was to be heir of the whole earth. It wasn't just geography in Palestine. But in the new covenant in Christ, because we belong to Christ, we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Everybody say, the promise is mine because I belong to Jesus. And because I belong to Jesus, I'm the seed of Abraham. Now keep repeating after me. What God promised Abraham, he's now promised to me. Because I am his. What does it say? Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God made Abraham several promises. He said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing. 
I'm going to make your name great, and through you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. The only way that came to be was through his singular seed, Christ. And now that you're no longer an Adam, but now you're in Christ, everything that God promised to Abraham, he said he would give him a seed, and through his family, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. I'm going to bless you. How many of you need God to bless you this morning? Say amen. You know what? It's not just to get a blessing, but he says, I'm not just going to bless you, but I'm going to make you a blessing. How many of you know that if you're really walking in the promises of God, that there's something that gets on you that just cause other folks get around you, they'll get blessed just to be in your presence because you're not just blessed. You are a blessing. You were made to be a blessing yourself. Seed of Abraham. It's not about former style. It's about the presence of God. The new covenant gave us this understanding when Jesus poured, he ascended to heaven and he poured out his spirit upon that first group at Pentecost. The prophet Joel said in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. From the time Jesus was resurrected and ascended has been the last days. We've been living in the last days. And God has been continuously, generation upon generation, as they roll through, pouring out His Spirit in revival in every generation, every generation seeing a hundred year flood. Once in a while, every 500 years or so, we would see a, a shaking that would literally rock culture to its roots and to its foundations. And something dramatic would take place, like we saw in 1517 with the Protestant Reformation. The greatest revival of the 20th century was the Pentecostal outpouring. Historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, tell you that that has radically changed the face of Christianity around the world. 25,000 people are coming to Christ in South America every day and speaking in tongues, being filled with the Holy Spirit. The greatest miracle that's taking place is the house church revival in China where most of the men are in prison because they confessed Christ and preached in Tiananmen Square and have been hauled in by the secret service of China and the women are leading the fastest growing churches in the world contrary to what a lot of the folks sit around in America and argue whether a woman should have any right to do or say anything in church or not the women are just doing it and getting the job done in China come on say amen it's not gonna hurt you I'll leave that alone. I'm so thankful. I wish some of my brothers could get a revelation that there's neither male nor female in Christ, neither bond nor free, neither black nor white, Jew nor Greek, Scythian or Sly. None of that stuff is really even material any longer, but it's about being in Christ. It's not about former style. It's about the presence of God. And it's just so amazing to me that worship has become such a hot-button issue among so many people. They argue about whether or not we should sing hymns or we should sing praise choruses. And they come and they say, Pastor, what's the right answer? And I say, yes. Ephesians 5.18 says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms, psalmos. You open the Bible. The very middle of your Bible is the worship manual. It's 150 chapters that are anointed and appointed by God. It's the cries. It's the place of travail. It's the place of sorrow. It's the excitement and the exaltation of triumph. It's, it's the victory in the battle. It's the sorrow in the time of loss. It's crying out and touching God because praise in the heart of David and worship in the heart of those men that he trained to stand before the presence of God in the ark of the Lord. It was all about a relationship Praise and worship is the nearest thing to true intimacy between Christ and his bride before we see him face to face. 
It is not just going through the motions. It's not just charismatic calisthenics, clap your hands, raise your hands, dance a jig, do whatever you do. By the way, all of that stuff is biblical. It's found in the Word of God. And while so many folks waste their time arguing on whether or not we should sing hymns that are 300 years old or use a pipe organ or whether we should sing a guitar and one that was just written, and all of those things are good and every one of them are right, and it's not about arguing over which one, whether we should sing a hymn or whether we should sing a psalm, I think some of the most amazing presence of God comes when we just take the actual word that has been anointed, just open the pages of your Bible and just begin to sing, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Some of you wonder, what in the world are you doing? Let me tell you, some of my sweetest times of worship and communion with God are just opening the word in in private time with him and just beginning to sing to God what already has been written thousands of years ago on the side of a hill when a little shepherd boy learned to take up a sling and some stones and protect a flock of sheep from lions and bears. And God revealed himself in the midst of those circumstances. He poured out his spirit upon David. David's probably the greatest worshiper in the Bible. David is an innovator. David does new things. He literally made new instruments. He, he wrote new music. He wrote new sounds. He, he, he took literally, if you, if you look at Psalm 8, Psalm 81, Psalm 84, there's a superscription that appears above it and it says, Upon Githith, G-I-T-T-I-T-H. That's, that's not go to the store and Githith some bread. That's Githith. It means from Gath. It's, it means wine press. And literally what David did was he took a popular top 40 Hittite tune and he he took the, the, the fray, he took the, the, the melody that was alive in the hearts of the people. They'd been hearing it. It was sung all around them. And he began to write words to a tune that was already in the hearts of the people. And he magnified the name of the God of Israel. If folks who are so religious and pharisaical had any idea that the 300, 400, 500-year-old hymns that they really want to put into a shadow box and place into a, the idea of worshiping the hymn as the style itself, if they had any idea that Luther had taken a popular bar tune that they sang in the pubs and he wrote worship tunes to something that the people had already heard, then maybe they wouldn't be so defensive about making sure that it got done that way. You know, it, it's, it's amazing to me because when the pipe organ was first introduced back in the 16th century, there were a host of folks who just for, were for sure that this was a demonic sound. And for a generation, they fought that sound, saying there's no way that that can be anything to do with any kind of, of the presence of God. And it took a generation that fought it to die out for it to become accepted. And then 300 years worth of generations of people worshiping the pipe organs and then technology changes and it comes along and we've got some new instruments on the scene. And the folks who have grown up thinking that the only way to worship God in his presence is through the, the grand and the glorious sound of a pipe organ. And I love it. By the way, if you didn't recognize that, that was the great hymn. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. And you know, the 20th century came along, and I just tell you, this, I was born at the right time. Because I, I, I just want you to know, I just don't believe that you can have church. Come on, somebody. I don't believe that you can really have church 
unless you got a little bit of Hammond involved in the sound. I'm not trying to entertain you this morning. I'm trying to tell you that it's not about the first thing you heard. It's not about the second sound you heard. It's not about one of these instruments. Greg, I'm not going to touch your guitar, baby. It's not about plucking that. It's not about beating those. It's about in all of that is our intention to bring the presence of God. It's not about former style. It's about the presence of God. God, if you don't go with us, we won't go because we can't do what you've called us to do. James stands up in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 and he quotes from Amos chapter 9 verses 11 and 12. He said, in those days, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. I will raise up its broken down ruins. And he says, for a purpose that the remnant of mankind might seek the Lord and that the Gentiles who are called by my name. God was intending to take the celebration of the presence of God from just a few folk who thought they were the private club, the Jewish people. And he was going to take it to the four corners of the whole earth so that all of the Gentile nations might come and worship before him. All of the earth shall remember, Psalm 22 says, and worship the king. First Samuel tells the story of Eli's wicked sons. First Samuel, some of my favorite reading. It's, it's amazing preaching here. I'm going to try to put this in turbo and give you as quick of a summary as I can because I want to get these, five, these other four points very quickly. The Philistines are the perennial enemy of the people of God. Philistines are a type of the flesh. David killed the lion and the bear and he finally killed the giant. Scripture says we have an adversary, the devil, who goes about as a roaring what? Lion. Three things in the world that we fight as Christians. The devil, the world, and the flesh. David killed with the same sling, with the word of the Lord. The lion, which is the adversary, the devil, the bear, which is the world that attempts to take us and swallow us up. And then Goliath, the flesh. Goliath was a Philistine. The Philistines are the type of flesh. It's that thing that you may have the devil at bay in your life. You may be resisting, conforming to the world and all of the stuff that is trying to come and attack you. The latest MTV version of, of everything that's popular. But we all have this thing that we walk around with that, 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 that calls out to us. It's the body of our flesh. It's the passions. The world, the flesh, and the devil, these are the things that are fought. And the Philistines are that perennial enemy of the people of God. And the Philistines gathered against the children of Israel one day in 1 Samuel. And the evil sons of, of Eli decided, we'll go get the ark of God and we'll carry that ark out into the battle because the ark of God represented the presence of the Lord. It was called the ark of the covenant of the Lord of the whole earth. That ark literally was, if, how many of you have seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? That literally, the picture that was shown there is a very accurate depiction. It was a box that was overlaid with gold. There was a one piece of huge beaten gold, the mercy seat, and on top of that were the wings of two cherubim, angels. One wings spreading in from the left up to the right, the other one's wings spreading over from the right back into the left. And the high priest would go into the tabernacle of Moses once a year and sprinkle the blood on the altar, and it was a polka-dotted golden piece of furniture. It was polka dotted because it was sprinkled with the blood of a sacrificial animal that was innocent. The two evil sons of, of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, not walking with God. Literally, 
conducting sex acts in the door of the tabernacle. Eli, a priest whose eyes have grown dim, wouldn't bring correction to his sons. And his sons decide one day, hey, look, the Philistines are about to take us. Let's go get the ark of God. If we take the ark of God out there into the battle, the presence of God will show up and it will defeat the Philistines. Only thing is that God knew their motives and he knew it out of their evil hearts. And God did something very, very amazing. God didn't do what they thought he would do that day. And God actually allowed the ark of the covenant to be captured by the enemy. The Philistines took the ark of God. It was the carrier of the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. This was literally God manifest in the flesh. This was where they knew that where the ark was, that was where the presence of God was. This was the God of Israel had just been captured by the enemy. But God had something up his sleeve. He allows the box That's not his presence. It's just an outward symbol for a temporary period of time that represents his presence among the people. And it gets carried into into the Philistine temple of Dagon. And Dagon is a big fish god. The Philistine priests are celebrating and the Philistine soldiers are declaring that, hey, we have beat the God of Israel. And they carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the whole earth and they put it up in the temple of Dagon. And the only thing is, is that when they come back the next morning, The fish god Dagon is lying prostrate on the ground before the ark of the Lord and his head and his hands are broken off. Dagon's a picture of the the enemy. He's a picture of Satan. When Jesus allowed himself to be captured by the enemy and went down into the very bowels of hell, it wasn't him who had to bow to Satan. Satan got his head broken off and his hands, his ministry, everything that he has any power to do. Come on, somebody. Help me a little bit this morning. No more head, no more hands. And the priests of the Philistines are upset and they go in and they set the god Dagon back up on his pedestal. And they come back in the next morning and he's fallen down again. Let me fast forward ahead through the story. Philistines begin to know we got to get this thing out of here because there really is a god in our, in among us and this god is more powerful than our god. And I don't want to give you too much information, but if you read the story, it literally says that God broke out among the whole Philistine nation with emeralds. Let me translate that for you. Hemorrhoids. God smoked the whole Philistine camp, the whole nation with hemorrhoids. They can't walk. They can't do anything. Don't even look at me like that. It's in the Bible. And the priests of, of, of Dagon, they basically said, we've got to get this thing out of here. And so I've got to leave a whole bunch out. They basically put this thing on a cart with two milk cows who have just birthed some new babies. And they said, if this thing really is God, then, 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 then this God will drive these cows apart from their little babies over here, their little calves that they have tied up. And the calves are lowing. They're, they're crying out for their mama. And if this, this, if this box really is God, if, if this is the God of Israel, then this thing will take them on out of here. And sure enough, the Bible says those cows went lowing, moving away from. And this is what happens when the presence of God gets in your life. It'll overtake your old nature and it'll drive you into something better. Come on, somebody. Well, the ark ends up in the house of a guy by the name of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom all of a sudden begins to get a reputation because how many of you know where the presence of God is? The blessing of the Lord is also going to be there. So Obed-Edom's got the box. He's got the ark of God, and everybody starts to hear it. Man, the 
presence of God. Blessing is on the house of Obed-Edom. His crops aren't failing. His family is growing. Everything he touches is prospering. And there's a lesson here. This is a message within the message. Get the presence of God in your life and the blessing of God will be your portion. David begins to cry out to God and he says, by the way, did you know that for a whole generation, through the whole administration of Saul, through Saul's whole kingdom, they have the tabernacle at Shiloh. Tabernacle of Moses is portable. It sets up and it tears down. And wherever the cloud of God by day and the pillar of fire by night goes, when the cloud begins to arise, they would sound the trumpet. And all the camps would begin to pack up and they would take the tabernacle of the Lord and they would follow the cloud being led by the Spirit of God until the cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night would stop. And then they would re-erect the whole tent. In the outer courts, you've got a brazen altar, which speaks of the sacrifice of Jesus. That's where the animals were slain. There's a brazen laver. It's water baptism. It was made out of the looking glasses of the women of Israel. You go to it, and you wash, and you see the mirror underneath the water, the mirror of your reflection. It's me spending time in the word of the Lord, and let it being washed by the water of the word, Ephesians 5. You're going into the holy place and you have everything outside. Here is is covered in brass. It speaks of judgment. You get on here in the inside, everything in here is covered by gold. And there's a golden candlestick speaking of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's a golden table of showbread speaking of the communion we just partook of. There's a golden altar of incense which ascends before the presence of God. And literally, sacrificial praise was offered there. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, that's a picture of the prayers and the praise of the saints. But then there's a six-inch veil, and behind that veil there is one room and there's one piece of furniture, actually two that had become one. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be. But for 40 years, all through Saul's administration, they've got the tabernacle set up at Shiloh, and they've got all of the beautiful vestments and the robes and the greatest equipment, and they have all of the finery and the pageantry. They have everything there except the presence of God because there is no Ark. What am I saying to you this morning? Man-centered religion can have a beautiful building. It can be ornate with stained glass and carved wood. We can dress in the finest robes. We can have $100,000 grand pianos and half-million-dollar pipe organs. We can have the best choir. We can have the most talented musicians. We can have the greatest oratory, the skills that absolutely would just fascinate and arrest the attention of anyone. But we can have every bit of that and not have the ark. We can have all of that and not have the presence of God. Are you hearing me this morning? I know that I'm at the edge here. But once I get this, I've got it. And we can hit these principles real quickly. David begins to cry out to bring the ark back. He's a man of worship. God, I won't be satisfied. We've seen a whole administration, a whole kingdom by Saul and his sons. And we've not had the ark in the place of worship. We've had all the finery all the pomp and circumstance, all the accoutrements of worship, all the pageantry, but no ark of God, no presence of God. And David starts crying out, God, we've got to bring the ark back. And he goes to Obed-Edom's house and he says, Obed-Edom, we got to get this thing back to Jerusalem. we got to bring it back. And David goes and erects a very simple tent on Mount Zion. He does something just totally whacked, totally apart from the law because it's a picture of the New Testament era that's coming. And he goes and he takes this, he 
makes one attempt and his first attempt fails and I've got to skip over all of that and he goes and gets some priests and he says, seek the law of God and find out how we're supposed to bring this thing back and he realizes that they're supposed to bring it on the shoulders of some qualified priests and so all the way, marching from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem, they would march 100 feet and they would offer a sacrifice and they would stop and sing and praise and magnify the name of the God of Israel. They would pick it up on the shoulders of some anointed Levitical priests again, and they'd march another 100 feet. And it took them days. And here they come into the city of Jerusalem, and David is rejoicing because he's a man of worship and a man of God's after God's own heart, and he's so excited that the ark of God, the presence of God, has come back to the capital city of the people of God in Jerusalem. And he gets so excited that he's dancing before the Lord with all of his might, and he literally loses his kingly garments. He dances down to his underwear. If I don't do anything, I'll keep you awake this morning i got to do this again at 1045. <laughs> Michael, the daughter of Saul, looks through the window and she despises him. And from that moment, she's struck barren. Never has any children. Unfortunately, too many times the churches who don't want anything to do with the kind of life that we have here stand from that position of the window of Michael, the daughter of Saul, from a soulish, soulish system. And they don't want anything that's unpredictable. Give me the predictability of a liturgy that I know everything that's going to happen every week. And how many of you know if God, if the God of the Bible is the God of wonder and the God of awe and the God of power who can do things in your life that are indescribable, shouldn't we as the people of God every time we come together expect God to possibly do something that maybe isn't planned? Come on, can you hear me just a little bit this morning? Number three, it's a huge shift in change. It's a huge shift in change because in the old tabernacle of Moses, you had to be born into the tribe of Levi. Nobody could go into that holy place except the priest. And certainly nobody except the high priest only once a year could go into the holiest of all. And he had to make sure that his heart was right and sacrifice for his personal sins had been made before he went in to sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Because if his own heart wasn't right, they'd have to drag. He would go in with a rope around his ankle, bells and pomegranates on the bottom of his robe. And if they didn't hear that jingle, they'd pull him out because he just died. Look at your neighbor and say, God ain't playing. Ain't playing. It was a very limited, natural priesthood. You have to be born a certain way. Leviticus 21 gave all these requirements. You couldn't have a crooked nose. All these are spiritual issues. You had to have some discernment. You couldn't have broken testicles. But you didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? I'm not afraid of it. What does that mean? It means that anyone who's going to handle the Word of God has to be able to reproduce the life of God. 
You can't, you can't have all these issues going on in your personal life to be a priest of the Lord. All of these requirements were for the Levitical, Levitical priests. And when David grabs the ark of God and sets it up in a single tent on Mount Zion, he basically throws a big, huge party, and he says, everybody is invited, young and old, male and female, come on, come on into the presence of God. And they didn't have to do all that pageantry. It was just a tent with the front door open, and they would come, and they brought the orchestras that David began to design. He literally had people that were praising God in shifts, eight-hour shifts, 24-7, around the clock. And they began to learn that when you praise God, his presence would show up. Anyone could come. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, anybody. That means you. There was no more animal sacrifices. The sacrifices now were sacrifices of praise and joy and thanksgiving. All kinds of musical instruments were employed. David invented a bunch of them. The focus was on ministering to God and not only receiving ministry from God. All kinds of psalms were written, praise and worship. There was a whole new pattern. There was a new sound. There were new methods. God's presence is fully there. It was not at Shiloh any longer. You see this. Religion can have all the stuff and be completely void of the ark, the presence of God. Number four, God dwells in the praises of his people. Say that with me. God dwells in the praises of of his people. Psalm 22:3 says it this way, but you are holy, O Lord, who inhabits the praises of Israel. In a, the ESV says it this way, for you, O Lord, O Lord, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. The, the Hebrew word there means dwells, it means abides, it means joins, it means marries. So when we come in here as the people of God, and we make the decision that it's not about me any longer, but it's about Jesus. And I do some things that maybe I've never been accustomed to doing before. Everybody, I see folks raising their hands. What's that about? Well, it's the universal sign of surrender. I'm saying, God, I'm yours. Everything I am and everything I'm not, everything I have and everything I've got, it's all yours. I give it to you. I worship you. I surrender to you, oh God. And as I come into this place and we do that corporately in the spirit of unity, literally the Bible says God comes and he enthrones himself. He sits down. He makes his throne. The throne is a place of authority. You want God to change your circumstances? Make sure what's coming out of your mouth is praise to him instead of complaint to him. Come on, somebody. Number five, and I'm finished. Praise is a tool that will change your circumstances and a weapon that will defeat your enemy. Everybody say praise. praise. Take the P off and say what's left. Praise. Raise. When you praise God, you get raised up in your understanding to where he's already seated you. Ephesians 2.6. He has raised us up and made us sit together with him in heavenly places. That's where you are right now. Wait a minute. I'm sitting on a chair in a room with some brothers and sisters. Yeah, but you don't know it, but you're actually seated in the heavenlies with Christ in a place of authority. He's already raised you up. When I praise him, it raises up my awareness out of my problems, out of my circumstances, out of my me-centeredness, out of my selfishness. I get my mind off myself and I get my mind on something that is so much greater than me and it's the God who made me and the God who loves me. And when I start to praise him, it raises my perspective and I can begin to see from the place of where I'm seated. I start to see my circumstances differently. I start to see them with the thoughts and the eyes 
and the perception of the Father. Praise is a tool that will change your circumstances and a weapon that will defeat your enemy. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 8.2 Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Everybody say, out of the the mouth of babes and infants. Now you've heard that all your life and sometimes that's attributed to the funny things children say. This is actually a biblical phrase and it appears right here in Psalm 8. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have ordained strength. You've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Praise is a weapon in your mouth that when you begin to focus it upon God, the enemy has to flee. Psalm 68, 1, let God arise and his enemies will be scattered. Get God's presence moving and working in your life. And the enemy can't touch you. All right? Last scripture and I'm finished. Are you getting anything out of this this morning? This is all for him. The New Testament is a picture of the presence of God the availability of it to everybody. It's no longer a bunch of religion that you got to go through. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Verse 14 of Matthew 21. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Did you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? this is significant so don't don't go home yet stay with me right here just for another second Jesus just quoted Psalm 8 verse 2 out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength King James says ordained strength that strength is in your mouth It is when you choose to praise God in the face of adverse circumstances it's when you choose to in the middle of the storm What did did the writer say? I will praise him in the storm. It's when you choose to put your focus on the God who's greater than the problem that you're in the middle of. It's when you make the choice to begin to say, Oh God, nothing is too difficult for you. You're the God of all flesh. It's when you begin to lift up your eyes and get them out of the mully grubs of the pity party of the problem, but you begin to look under the hills from which comes your help. What comes from the Lord, great God Almighty. And you begin to praise him, then he, you sense the raising up of his presence. Jesus said it himself, out of the mouth of babes. He interpreted for us what established strength is. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have prepared praise. Everybody say, established strength. Say, prepared praise. King James says, perfected praise. Out of the mouth of these babies and infants, God has perfected praise. It's amazing to me sometimes when I see couples come to victory and they've been a part of a church in the past that doesn't have the freedom of expression of worship that we have here. And it takes the, the parents, the adults, it takes them a little while to where they get to where they can worship the Lord and you know, kind of see them over week by week. It's almost like the flag's going up the staff a little at a time. 
And then they just get comfortable with it and realize that you're not weird because you do it. It's not just Old Testament Psalms. The Bible says in the book of Timothy, I would that men everywhere would lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It's both Old and New Testament scripture. Lifting up holy hands in the sanctuary. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Sing to the Lord a new song. All of these things God has given us, and I'm going to talk about it in the pattern next week. But you know, it's so amazing when I see these couples come and the husband and the wife just begin to enter into praise and their lives start to flourish and there's fire in their heart and they're praying together and there's excitement because the presence of God is coming and touching them. And it's so wonderful because those little children, they see mom and daddy do it and they don't have any apprehension whatsoever. They're just praising God. Little babies, isn't it awesome to have your children raised in Zion? To have your children grow up in a house where the presence of God is. God help us that there are people this morning. Please don't hear this in any kind of an arrogant way. But there are lots of churches where you can go and get everything with all the accoutrements. And you have all of the finery and all the stuff there. But the ark is missing. There is no presence of God. And I'm going to tell you, that right there is our first value. As long as I am the pastor here and God has set me here, our pursuit is God's presence. That's why people's lives are being changed. Our praise team is talented. They have skills. But I'm going to tell you something. It's not about any of that at all. It's not about a pipe organ or a Hammond. It's not about a guitar or a set of drums. But it's about a unified people that are willing to come together and seek the face of God so that the remnant of all the earth can find the presence of the Lord. God has set you here victory in the delta. When I established this thing 23 years ago, written into the bylaws of this church, established with the state attorney of the state of Arkansas, victory's purpose is to be a catalyst for revival and cultural transformation for the delta. That's what God has called us to be. If you don't go with us, God, we can't do it. Lord, if we don't have your presence, we can't do it. How many of you need some of that this morning? Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Bow your heads with me, please, this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Gracious God, as we bring this service to a close this morning, we thank you for your presence. It is in this place. There's, there's a tangibility to it. We rejoice at, oh, how you love us. Thank you, Father, that if there's anyone here under the sound of my voice that doesn't have that confidence that when they go, that you will go with them. Lord, thank you today that it all begins in a work in their individual heart and them saying, Jesus, change me. Jesus, save me. Come into my heart. I want your presence in me and with me. You know, it's not about earning it or deserving. It's not about being good enough. None of us are. I'll be the first to get in line and tell you this is not about what I can do in my power of strength because that's totally bankrupt. But it's what Jesus Christ has already done for me and for you. Heaven is a free gift. It cannot be earned or deserved. All Jesus is interested in this morning is you responding to this in his presence in this place and saying these three simple words, Jesus, save me. 
If you'd like to be included in this prayer this morning before we close this service and you've sensed something of the presence of God in this place and you want to be filled with His presence and know that you're His child, if you'd like to be included in this prayer, would you, with every head bowed, every eye closed, would you just slip up your hand this morning? I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I'm not going to call you forward or anything. Anybody in the room? I'd like to be included in this prayer. All right, you've been walking with the Lord for a while. And you know what? You just really honestly, what the girls sang about desert song, you're just dry. And you just need God to rain on you. You just need some fresh pouring out of the Spirit of God on your dry ground. In the very same way that we saw flood levels of over 100 years sitting out here at the levees, I believe God is going to, that was a prophetic sign for what He's going to do. He's going to pour out His Spirit in deluge, in rain, in flood upon the delta by the power of His Spirit. You know what? We can't do that unless we are filled with His Spirit. Some of you this morning, anybody in the room just want to slip your hand up and say, I need, I need to be filled with His presence. I need Him more than I've ever needed Him before. Thank you for your hands. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray right now as we bring this service to a close, we cry out to you, even as those did before Pentecost. We wait in just a moment of silence here and we say, Jesus, fill us. Fill us by your Spirit. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to be the people of God in the Delta. To be better husbands and wives and businessmen and women and students and children and parents and all the things that we do. Lord God, we cry out to you for your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said,